Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. You can wear them wherever you wear socks. I wear them to podcast all the time. That's why I tell you about them. I buy them with my own money. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber, so they smell great in addition to looking great. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you don't like them, hang on to them. Mac Weldon sends you your money back. I don't know how it works, but it works. 20% off with the promo code RECODE. MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Actually, full disclosure, I'm not going to be on this podcast episode. My colleague, Jason Del Rey, who is the best damn e-commerce reporter you can find. He works with me at Recode. He's interviewing Nick Bilton of Vanity Fair. So they're going to talk about Silk Road, which is Nick's new book. They talk about a bunch of other stuff. Nick's great. Jason's great. You're in great hands. Enjoy the show. Thanks, Peter. Like you said, I'm here with Nick Bilton, journalist and author of a few books, but most recently, American Kingpin, the epic hunt for the criminal mastermind behind the Silk Road. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. So typically, I don't bring notes with me to interviews, onstage stuff, or podcasts, but there's so much I want to cover today that I'm not embarrassed to show you. There's a little index card here. And it's a paper index card. I'm, I'm surprised you don't have your cell phone with notes written in Evernote. Does Evernote still exist? It does in some form, but no, that's not me. I'm, um, I'm pretty old You're school. You're a pa- paper guy. I'm a paper guy. Um, so a lot to get to, but let's start with American Kingpin. Came out yesterday, which is would be Tuesday, May 2nd. Are you glued to the Amazon rankings? Right I, I'm trying not to look. I, it's funny. I've actually turned. I, I don't have Google alerts on my name. I don't look at my at replies unless it's from people I'm friends with. I try not to look at the the Amazon rankings or the comments. It is uh, if you live by that, you you live by the the highs and you die by the lows. And I find it better just to kind of try to get through the day without looking. But but every once in a while, You're I, gonna will, peak. I will peak. But I try to do it as as little as possible. But I do believe. That Jeff Bezos is sitting in a castle somewhere with a, a little cat, and he rubs its a high it, castle, perhaps a high castle. Yes, and uh, that was good. And he, he rubs the cat's head and, and smiles whenever <laughs> he sees the actual author looking at, at their rankings because it's it's torture. It's complete torture. So maybe someday I'll know what that feels like. For now, I'm going to ask you a ton of questions about this book and other fun stuff. Sounds so good. the Silk Road. Let's start with the Silk Road. I'm sure a lot of our listeners here um, know what that is and what that was. But why don't we start with a little explanation from you on what the Silk Road was and and how you came to write this book. Well, so um, I'm a special correspondent with Vanity Fair now, and I used to be at the New York Times. And I lived in San Francisco um, covering tech and business and so on for the New York Times as a columnist. And I lived in this little sleepy area of of the city called Glen Park. Um, And it used to be where all the firefighters and, and, you know, cops and so on lived before they got priced out. Um, and uh, I used to walk my dog every single day past this library, and um, it was this library was tiny. It looked like a shoe store. And I always used to wonder, like, who goes into that little library? And then the news broke that Ross Ulbricht, um, also known as the Dread Pirate Roberts, who ran one of the biggest drug empires on the internet, had been arrested there. Uh, and that was kind of what led me to get involved in the story. I was just so fascinated by the fact that... Were you, were you aware at the time of what, what the Silk Road was, that, I, it, that it was a... Yeah, Black I was. Market. I had covered um, the the Lulzek, the hacker crew for for the New York Times for a few years, and and other hacker crews um, simple similar to them. 
so I was aware of the Silk Road and, of course, had written about Bitcoin, as, as a lot of people had at that by then, and um, and the dark web and so on. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't frequently go on there or I didn't actually ever go on there. Um, no, I went on there once. That's not true. I did go on once to, to check it out, but I never purchased anything. But the, the thing was, the, the problem with the Silk Road back then was when uh, uh, Ross Ulbricht was running it, no one knew how big it was. There were people that, that presumed, oh, maybe it did X amount of drugs a year in sales or, or why, but it was actually um, it was doing hundreds of millions of dollars. In- and the reason, one of the reasons why no one knew was because it was not living on what we would think of as the regular web, correct? Correct. So it, it was, um, the way you accessed it was uh, through Tor, the web browser, um, which anonymizes people. Um, and then you purchase things through using Bitcoin. And um, it's, uh, you know, at its height, it sold thousands of different types of drugs and um, heroin, crack, uh, marijuana, different kinds of acid, different types of ecstasy, uh, things that, that you probably have never even heard of before, uh, N-bomb, fentanyl, all these things that are made in these labs in China. I have not heard of those um, until I read the book. And, uh, and then there was a point where they were selling guns, um, you know, Glock 9s and bullets and, and so on. Um, uh, what else was it? There was hacking tools and counterfeit passports and IDs. And, and all of this was arriving in, in the U.S. at least, and USPS was was delivering this stuff? Or Yeah, what's really interesting is um, uh, in the beginning of the book, the book starts out with this moment where this um, agent from the Department of Homeland Security, um, Jared Driegan, ends up finding a single pink pill, literally one pink pill, in the mail in, at the Chicago O'Hare Airport in this massive, massive structure where all the mail comes into the country that I actually got to visit and, 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 and see. And he starts wondering, well, wh- how is it that, that one little tiny pill is coming from Amsterdam and going to someone in Chicago? And that's kind of what opens the case for him. And when he found out what the Silk Road was through his investigation um, and how it worked, he wasn't necessarily as terrified of the drugs. What he was terrified of was the fact that, that people were, were using all of these things built by America to actually subvert American laws. For example, TOR is built by the U.S. Navy. It was designed so that people could, who were overseas in the Navy could actually uh, send messages to their loved ones without the, f- the fear of a dictator you know, finding anything out about them. The U.S. Postal Service, we all know how that works, and that was delivering its drugs. Um, the Internet, using the backbones that, that were built in, in, in technology and so on. And his big fear was not necessarily drugs, but his fear was what if a terrorist could come into the country just on a regular visa like a vacation. They didn't have to bring any weapons in. They could purchase them on the Silk Road, and then they could do whatever they wanted with them. And the founder of the Silk Road, um, so the book is written as a, as a narrative, nonfiction yep. narrative, and uh, you go pretty deep into his background. And to a lot of people, when he would ultimately be arrested and sentenced to life in prison, a lot of people who knew him well thought, this can't be the same guy. So how did he get from a pretty normal childhood to founding what was for, I think, two years, the, the largest underground black market in the world? So uh, it's a great question, and it, it, it was the, you know, the crux of what my reporting was about. Um, you know, uh, he, if you go back, um, you know, Ross Ulbricht was this incredibly smart kid, um, incredibly kind. Um, he lived in, in, in Austin, Texas, and um, he had, you know, grew up with, uh, with two parents that cared about him and loved him and a sister, and he volunteered on weekends, and he was, you know, I spoke to people from all ranges of his life from elementary school on and um you know the through line was that he was this really sweet and gentle and kind person and he had this philosophy that you should immediately trust everyone 
And that philosophy eventually, you know, morphed into this idea that um, that the government should not be able to tell people what they can and cannot do. That they should they should trust them to do whatever they want with their own bodies and their own lives. This um, is the libertarian, streak. which which he so eventually ends up. He goes to. Uh, to the University of Texas in Dallas, and then he goes off to um, to Penn State, um, and he wants to be a physicist. And he gets uh, when he's at, at Penn State. There's all these clubs, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of clubs. It's like the there's the chess club and the the cupcake club and the you know, you name it. And he ends up joining two clubs. He jo- joins the Djembe Drum Club and he joins the Libertarian College Club. And he gets super into libertarian politics. And you know, libertarian politics is, politics is this idea that that no one should tell anyone else what they can and cannot do with their own life and their own body. And um, and when you apply this this theory of, of, of trusting everyone, which Ross had, he had this idea of what if you built a website where you could allow people to buy and sell whatever they want without the government telling you what you could and could not sell, and that you would have to trust people to ensure that they would, they would sell you good drugs. Um, and so he decides he's going to build the site, and he uses Tor and Bitcoin, and he goes off and and, uh, and builds a laboratory uh, where he grows, you know, several pounds of magic mushrooms um, and then opens for business. And so I know he ends up in San Francisco at the end. The arrest happens in San Francisco. If I just blew the story, I think it's, no, it's already it's, a story. That well, it's, every- it's, it's interesting because I think that the arrest is not the part. I mean, that it's, it's the things that lead up to it that are just so – I mean – I'm sure you knew before you started the story, before you started reading the book, how it ends. Sure. It's the stuff that gets there that's just mind-boggling. I mean, it was just there were there were times that I was writing and my mouth was agape, you know. And so he ends up in San Francisco. Um, at at any point throughout the him building this site, obviously Bitcoin is uh, the currency that was being used to make the purchases, and that's sort of a popular uh, idea in Silicon Valley. But was he looking at a model of entrepreneur or idea idealism from Silicon Valley when he was creating this, or is this much different? No, it's. I mean, it's fascinating because he ran the site in the same way that Uber or Facebook are run. You know, um, and the, the 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 crazy part is he uses some of the same quotes as those CEOs. You know. Know, um, reads the same books and and cites the same you know quotes on the internet on social media and so on and and um, so and he, Ross could be Travis Ross absolutely could be Travis um, you know Travis decided to disrupt the taxi industry uh, Chesky decided to disrupt the the hotel industry Ross Ulbricht decided that it was going to be drugs and guns and um, and there's probably a world in which it could have all flipped around and those different people could have been running each other's companies in some some way or another but he. He had a, a lieutenant that he hired. His name was Variety Jones, um, uh, who was essentially the conciliar on the site. And he It's my favorite name in the book by far. It's an amazing he's an amazing, amazing character. He he's so smart and witty and intelligent. And the thing that's fascinating is I, I got to see a lot of Ross's debates in, in Libertarian Club at um, at Penn State, and he was so smart and he was so articulate. And if people would say, you know, Drugs shouldn't be legal, which the Republicans and the Democrats in college would say. He would have these very smart retorts, like, "Well, if drug, you know, how many people have died from marijuana or magic mushrooms in the past ten years? None. Um, and so, and yet, forty thousand people die a year from heart attacks, but we let them eat Big Macs, or you know, tens of thousands die from cigarettes, and we we don't make those illegal. And so, his arguments were very valid, and and they were hard to to discredit. Um, except Variety Jones always could. Um, his lieutenant, and and they have this amazing relationship in the book, and um, and and they did in real life. And uh, so he, Variety Jones, was was the COO. He was the Sheryl Sandberg of uh, the Silk Road. 
that just sounds wrong in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of ways. But to circle back a second to the to the Travis through line, uh, just just to hammer home this point, he was not looking at he was not looking at innovation in Silicon Valley and saying. I'm sort of the next. I think no, he was. You know, there's a so one of the things that in the reporting of the book was I was able to. You know, we'll get to that in a little bit. But but I was able to 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 get access to 2.1 million words of chat logs and diaries from Ross's computer, where he had detailed every conversation he'd have with his employees while he ran the site. And there's a point where he wants to, um, you know, about halfway through, where he wants to start expanding the Silk Road. He wants to start doing a Silk Road for guns and a Silk Road for pharmaceuticals and a Silk Road for um, for hacker tools and all these things. He wants to kind of... He wants to diversify. He wants to diversify. And he, yeah. he wants to do a master's of Silk Road, which would be like a Costco for, for drugs where you could buy kilos and tons and so on. And he's talking about it with Variety Jones. And he comes up with an idea that... Before he wants to do that, um, Ross Ulbricht, he's, he wants to, to do uh, different language versions of the site, so a Spanish version and so on. And Variety Jones is like, that's stupid. Why would you want to do that? It, it, w- let's focus on growing the empire, and then we'll translate the site. And he gives him this lecture about, you know, do you want to be Larry the Cable Guy or the next Steve Jobs? And and you can tell, and Ross is like, Ross wants to be the next Steve Jobs. And 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 that's the, you know, these were the, the inspirations. It was the same thing. And he was living in San Francisco, talking to people that worked at these these big tech startups. And, and he was bringing those ideas to how he ran the site. So we're going to jump into the reporting process in a second, because I'm fascinated with how that went down. First, I'm going to kick it over to Peter to tell you a little bit about our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Willis Towers Watson. Cybersecurity is one of the greatest threats any business faces. Last year, more than 400 million new malware threats were released and more than half a billion personal records are breached. Businesses spend $100 billion a year on cyber technology, but cybersecurity is as much about employee behaviors as it is the tech. The average network breach can cost $4 million in company losses. That's why you need to know about Willis Towers Watson. They understand the only comprehensive approach to cybersecurity to deal with all of it, your people, your capital, and your technology risks. Willis Towers Watson decodes all that complexity, it is complex, through a comprehensive three-stage approach. They assess the cyber risks throughout your business, they protect your company with best-in-class solutions, and they improve your ability to recover from future attacks. You can learn more about what Willis Towers Watson can do for you at willistowerswatson.com slash recode. That's willistowerswatson.com slash recode. Today's show is also brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. If you need a boost in hosting power, they can do that too. HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Recode listeners get 60% off. That's 6-0. It's a lot. Go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash recode. And here's my friend Lauren Good with a word from Viacom. Hi, this is Lauren Good from The Verge. And we're all fans of something. So I'm supposed to tell you about what I'm a fan of. I just say I'm a fan of outdoor sports and watching videos with adrenaline junkies, basically things I would never dare to do myself, but like maybe imagine that I could do. And that's all a part of our culture now. And the way we consume culture is changing. So the way fandom works is changing too. So there's this awesome new podcast about exactly that change called Fan Club. And it's about why we love what we love. 
Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on earth. Ross has dedicated his career to marketing and innovation in entertainment. Named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business and a three-time Emmy winner to boot, Ross has continually explored fandom through his work at Viacom, which is the home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and so many more iconic brands. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out how we're going to watch, listen to, and consume culture. He talks to a slew of amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, whether it's musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it's going to be experienced in the future. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things that you love. You can subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to this show. Thanks, Lauren. Now we're back to Jason and Nick Bilton. Thanks, Peter. I'm back here with Nick Bilton, journalist and author, most recently of American Kingpin. We're talking about the Silk Road and the story of the uh, man who created it and and is now serving life in prison for that role. Um, So one of the fascinating things about this read to me was the dialogue and the narrative. And, you know, reading it as a journalist who has never written probably more than 5,000 words uh, in in, uh, published form, I was curious what the reporting was like. There are scenes where Ross... Uh, the founder is with a then girlfriend, and you know uh, they're they're talking about this and that, or they're spooning in bed or stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, did you talk to one of them? Were there were there other public documentation about this scene? Are you recreating? Or is there some you know writer's license there? How how does that work? So uh, with narrative nonfiction, I think that the um, it's changed a lot just over the past few years. Um, uh, and and I had this realization when I wrote the Twitter book, um, the, the book about Hatching Twitter before American Kingpin. You know, we live in a world where we leave behind every single day um, a million little, you know, breadcrumbs of what we've done and what we've, where we've been. Um, we post photos of ourselves on Facebook and we sh- which show what we were wearing and who we were with. We, we like photos and comment on things and um, and watch videos and 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 text our friends and and email our coworkers and so on and if someone was able to get access to all of that stuff you know if someone was able to get access to your iMessages and every photo that you'd taken um, they could tell a very compelling story with it um, and with Ross Ulbricht what was fascinating was he lived his life very privately um, when he was trying to hide from from some people that were trying to kill him, at least they thought they, they were trying to kill him. He went and lived in an apartment in San Francisco paying $1,200 a month in cash and renamed himself Josh. Um, he, um, you know, but, but because he was so, so private in public, he was so public on the internet. Um, and hmm. so he was constantly on social media. He was on his computer 24 hours a day almost, you know, it was in, um, except to sleep. And, um, he was constantly chatting with his employees all over the world who were helping him run the site, um, moderating things on the on the forums and so on. Um, he's not there like posting on Twitter or he is. Or he no, is. he's posting as Ross. So the Dread Pirate Roberts is posting on the site. The fierce leader. The fierce leader, the Dread Pirate Roberts. And he's posting 
things that, you know, Ross talked about at Penn State, the same books that he read, you know, the same quotes and so on and so forth. And he's, and then in private in these chat logs, which I was able to gain access to, and it's literally, I mean, it took weeks and weeks to get through those chat logs. Um, were those public in court or? Some of them were, some of them were not. Um, uh, um, he, um, and then I, I, I got access to, um, to thousands of photos and videos from his cell phone, from his computer, from friends, and so on and so forth. I probably interviewed um, close to 100 people um, through all ages of his life. Um, what, I, what, what's in it for a family member or a friend to cooperate? Um, I think that it's, it's different for everyone. Um, but let me, let me just, uh, before we jump there, I, I sure. just want to explain. So, so one of the things I did is working with the researchers, we took all of this information. So we took the chat logs, we took the photos, we took the, um, uh, the, the diary entries, all these different things, um, the social media posts, and we put together a, a database where we could cross-correlate everything by time. So I could look at 3.48 p.m. on you know, January 11th, 2012, and I could see what the Dread Pirate Roberts was doing and talking about what Ross was doing on social media and talking about, and then look for photos that, that lined up with that. And it was amazing to see how everything just came together so succinctly. Um, there was like a moment when Ross goes camping with his with uh, uh, three friends. Yep. Um, and, um, and the Dread Pirate Roberts says, all right, I'm going away for the weekend. Uh, he logs off. And he puts a, some one of his employees in charge of the site. Um, this literally minutes later, you see a photo of him standing by a car uh, on social media on Facebook uh, with a backpack on. Goes off camping for a weekend, comes back at the end of the weekend, logs back on um, as the photos of them arriving home um, go up online and the comments and so on and the timestamps of the photos too. And he talks about how he had this wonderful weekend. He met this girl on this trip, and so. That happened over and over, and the detail that I was able to get from that was just staggering. There were moments where I found things that were just terrifying that you could figure it out. Like uh, the EXAF data, which is the location data, right. the GPS data in a photo, would lead me to a girlfriend that I didn't even know that person's name. So, And that would end up in the book in some form? It would end up in the book in some form, and then I was able to interview people um, You know, to, to answer your other question of what makes someone want to want to talk to me. Um, I mean, that's why we have careers. But yeah, it, it, it's, in this it's, case, I think that there's a there's a. It's very different with a book. You know, when you're when you're reporting a story for for the newspaper or the blog or whatever it is, you you're just trying to get like the little snippet of information. You're trying to get what happened behind the scenes and so on. And I think it's a people, little more transactional. It's a little more transactional, and there's reasons that people. You know, I've had this conversation with a lot of friends that are journalists. There are a lot of reasons people tell you things. You know, some, some people tell you things because they don't like their boss or the project they worked on didn't get, you know, didn't ship or, or you know, they just want to see their name on, on the internet or whatever it is. There's all these reasons. And when it comes to a book, believe it or not, there's a lot of people that want to ensure that, that the story is correct, first of all. And second of all, a book is, is – is, it's around for a long time. And I, and I don't know if people understand that or if they – or, or what it is, but but I find that um, when trying to t get people to talk to me for a book, it is it is vastly easier than it is um, for for just a transactional story. Is that, is that part of your pitch when you're trying to win over? Ooh, do, do we want to go there? Um, Let's go there. Part of part of my no, I think that um, I think that uh, everyone has um, everyone has a reason that they want to talk. Um, some people don't want to talk, um, but but most people do. And and I think the thing that I've learned doing this for for over a decade now 
is you just have to figure out what that reason is um, and then and then play to that. Um, and it can be a little manipulative, sure. Um, uh, but if you're if the, if you're correct in your assumption of what the reason is, then the person telling you is is getting something out of it too. Um, and um, the hardest thing I think with this is that, um, and anyone who's who's ever done any reporting knows this, is everyone has a different viewpoint, you know. And um, and the hardest thing is making sure that that the concentric circles of people's memories and their facts and so on actually line up. Um, and uh, and with a book, when you're spending hundreds and thousands of hours researching and interviewing people and so on, that that's that's the most difficult thing. And the beauty of living in the internet age and reporting and writing narrative nonfiction today is that um, is that the the, the the digital timestamps don't really ever lie. That's the cautionary tale. Yeah, yeah. One thing that surprised me, I read the acknowledgments in the book, mm-hmm. and um, one of the first people you acknowledged were the parents of uh, Ross Albrecht. And I believe you, you explained that you did not speak to them for the book, but you have talked to them in the past. Can, yeah. can you explain that a little bit and why they were so high up in your... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it was interesting. So I, I have two kids now, um, uh, young. Um, one's a baby, one's a toddler, and um, and they were. I don't know if they were both born in the process of writing this book, but one of them definitely was, and one of them was growing up um, as I was as I was writing it, and and I constantly had the struggle of of as of what they must have gone through, and I saw them in the courtroom um, during Ross's trial, and. Um, and I, you know, I felt terrible for them. I really, truly felt terrible for them. And um, and I uh, um, and I couldn't imagine what it would be like to go through that. And um, you have the son who you love and adore and would do anything for, who has done these things and ended up in prison as a result. And um, and do you do, do you get upset with him for doing it? Do you? Are you proud of him for doing it? Are you, you know, it, 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 it's, it, do you, do you agree with the sentencing when you think about the fact that, that people died as a result of the site? There were overdoses and, and, uh, an overdose. Which were directly linked to. Which were directly linked and, and the people and two parents who, who lost their children as a result of the site, one from bad drugs and one from an overdose. Um, uh, one of the kids being 16 years old. Um, came and spoke at Ross's sentencing, um, uh, cried, and, and it was incredibly emotional. And and so, how do you feel about that as as the parent? You know, and and you know, um, I think it's different for every parent. And uh, and I don't know, and I hopefully will never have to know. Um, but I definitely, it's something that was in the top of my mind while I was writing this book. And um, and it's also difficult to write a book about someone who who is in jail um, and for the rest of their life probably and, uh, um, and and know that you're kind of contributing to that story. And you, you never were able, able to talk to Ross for the book? Is that correct? No, I was never um, – he, he wouldn't – he won't talk to anyone. He's in an appeal process and probably will be for, for many, many years. Um, and but, but I also didn't necessarily want to talk to him because I don't think that anything he would have told me would have been accurate or the truth. Um, uh, he – you know, he's not going to come out and say, oh, "Okay, Nick, let me tell you about the time I, you know, ordered a ordered hit on a someone." Hit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, you know, with those chat logs and all the photos and things like that that I had, and being able to talk to people in his life, um, even people who knew him, who he had confided in that he had built the site and worked on the site, 
Um, but those chat logs were just, I mean, I could have spent 100 hours with Ross and I wouldn't have gotten the information that I got out of those chat logs. So let's fast forward to t- today. For, first, I'm just curious, were you writing this book while you were still at the Times? Was it between the New York Times and Vanity Fair where you are now? It was now? between the New York Times and Vanity Fair. I um, uh, I was doing reporting while I was at the Times um, and started writing uh, – I think I wrote it's about 110,000 words. I think I wrote maybe about 70,000 words or so at at um at the times and then went, and then I took a month between um going to Vanity Fair to, to to try to wrap it up and uh and then finished it while I was there. Why did you make that jump to Vanity Fair? For for a lot of people the New York Times is it whether it's the failing New York Times or not. For uh, for real Donald Trump it's neither. Um uh, I I made the jump because I um, had been there for a long time. I'd been there for fourteen years or so, fifteen years, and um, and I'd been a columnist. And and you know, there's a lot of people who work at the Times. They call it the velvet coffin when you when you become a columnist because you could just kind of float through and and do your job. And and for me, um, although if you check your app mentions on Twitter, you your life is full of a lot of a lot of different conversations and opinions. Yeah, um, uh, but you, but it's a, you know, it's a this, it's a very kind of, you know, what you're doing every week and and so on. And for me, one of the things that I've learned is um, I, I'm not very good at the like, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell kind of writing where you kind of try to string together, uh, you know, why dogs have fleas and and markets go sideways or whatever it is. I you know I tried doing that with my first book. It was a disaster. Um, what I, I feel like I, I am really good at is narrative nonfiction, is telling a story, is with an arc and a um and and I love doing it. It's like there's nothing that brings me more joy in writing than that. And um and the 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 most optimal place to do that was Vanity Fair. Um were you limited in your ability to do that there? Were, did at you the push? New York Times? Yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah. You don't you don't really write that much at the New York Times. You do a lot of reporting and you every once in a while get to write like a really fun turn of phrase. And but there's a structure. You know, a column is a lead, a nut graph, um, a couple of quotes. Um, you maybe get to, to sprinkle in a tiny little bit of opinion, but if you do too much, you're going to get your hand slapped. Um, and then you have a kicker, and that's it. It's literally a jigsaw puzzle you can put that together every single solitary week. And, um, and it sounds it, like a. Tr- it sounds like you thought it was a chore at some point. It wasn't a chore. It actually became. It became you know not a chore, and that it, it wasn't challenging anymore. And that was a problem for me. I, 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 I felt like I, I, you know, I, I wanted to be more challenged, and, um, and I love the times, and and um, I'm almost all my colleagues there, um, uh, and um, but I just, I just was like, I don't, you know, I, I, you get one life, and. I would love to try to do something different. And the other thing is, you know, the, you know, I'd done some freelance work for Vanity Fair. I'd written a magazine feature for them. And, and I found that um, that it was such an amazing culture. Um, you know, The Hive, which where, where I primarily write for, um, is I'm the only man that works there. It's all women. Uh, uh, so my, col- culture gets thrown around a lot when it comes to different organizations. So what do you it's mean? It's so what do, what drastically do you mean? different. Um is no. it a thro- is it a throwback? Besides, I think Vanity Fair, and I think those jobs don't exist anymore. No, it's not a throwback. It's it's not. It's um. It's it's that you get to. So like with a with a place like the Times, one of the things that makes it so amazing is that you can pick up that paper or go on that website and you know what you're getting. You're getting the same voice. The, the everything you know. A column is eleven hundred words. Uh, you know, it, you you know what's coming. Um. Uh. And 
um, and that's what makes it so great. And it's great reporting, it's great writing, so on and so forth. And um, and and one of the ways they do that is they can control. You know, they control it. You know, if you work on the sports desk, you are never writing about Donald Trump. If you work on the politics desk, you're you're barely ever writing about tech. And and the sports desk tweeted about. They did Donald tweet about Trump, Donald Trump. That's that, correct. That didn't end well. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I got I got in, uh, in in major trouble once for writing a story um, that uh, was could have been a borderline science story, and there, I mean, it was like all hell broke loose. And you know, I've seen that happen a lot of times. For was people. this was this the uh, health effects of yeah, wearables? The, the health effects of wearables, which which uh, a, I, a lot I, of people had tr- problems with. Which a lot of people had problems with. Um, uh, uh, although, and not to get into that too much, but if you go back and look at the New York Times, they have written that exact same story 40 times using the same kind of quotes. It, you know, it just, it, it is what it is. Um, anyway, move, moving on from that. Yeah, let, um, let's keep it moving. Um, no, I think that uh, um, the... Uh, you were talking about the culture of the Vanity Fair. Yeah, the culture, culture of Vanity Fair is a, it's, you know... We we write about I get to write about politics and and Hollywood and business and tech and you know and the Silk Road and it and everything um, and Trump uh, um, and you know one week I'll be working on a investigative story trying to find the Trump tapes and the next I'll be working on you know something about the fire festival leaking the document the the pitch deck or you know things like that and and it's. And um, and it's a it's it's a it's because it's such a small shop. It's it's um it's a very collaborative one, and it's 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 I don't know. It's just it's a it's a really great place to work. And you're writing both online and and for print. It looks like it looks like I see your byline maybe once every like ten days or two weeks or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I write a I write a column. Um, it's more of like an essay online every week, and then I um and then sometimes longer pieces online, and then I do um. Uh, uh, a magazine feature usually it's pr- pretty much been every couple of months now. So one of the most talked about pieces you wrote recently at Vanity Fair was um, something about Mark Zuckerberg and whether he would someday... You mean be- President Zuckerberg. President Zuckerberg, who's right now on a campaign trail milking cows. Milking cows. And a lot of people had strong opinions about uh, that take. Yeah. Yeah, uh, w- Um well, so the piece was essentially that 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 it looked like Mark Zuckerberg may run for president one day. Um, uh, but I also did have a caveat that uh, that it may be too small of a job for someone like him. Um, and uh, and yeah, it it uh, it kind of exploded a little bit on the internet uh, as things tend to do. And um, uh, and but, there have been and there have been pieces where he has said, I think some of your colleagues at the New York Times have him. Um, saying it's not going to happen, and uh, I feel like there are other have been other articles where where either Facebook or he are saying, yeah, nope, there was nope, not right. There was an article on BuzzFeed where they got access to Zuckerberg and they asked him, uh, "Will you run for president?" And it was a you know just a no, and then and then you know BuzzFeed put out the the news that Mark Zuckerberg is not Breaking. running for president. Breaking news, exclusive. Top of the news. Um, of course, he's going to say no. Imagine. Let's just imagine for a second that he was like, "Yes." Can you imagine what Zuck, what the um, the Facebook stock would have done? Not a good. Plummeted, not a good day. Plummeted. So, okay, there are. I've had discussions with with my old colleagues at the Times about this, and and people all over the place. the The question I have is: maybe he's running, maybe he's not. What the heck is he doing? 
right? So if you, you, you look at the, the fact that he is out there, you know, riding a tractor, as you said, sucking on the teat of a cow. In I, the did, middle. I did not say that. You but, said a version of that. He's yeah. drinking it out of the bottle. Um, uh, he, but he's, I mean, he's doing all these things. He's having dinner with a family that he would never normally probably want to have a conversation with. He's been crisscrossing, I think, uh, Southeast uh, U.S. And, and now maybe Middle America as well. So, so if you, if you, 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 there's an argument you could say, oh, well, he's, he's doing his yearly challenge. Okay, well, why didn't we see photos of his yearly challenge before when he was killing animals and eating them himself or whatever? We, we, Lear- we, learning Mandarin is le- not very... Not, still, uh, let's see some photos of it. Yeah. There, he has this photo photographer that follows him around and they all the photos look so presidential so my thing is he is running for something i don't know what it is emperor of the world i think it could be emperor of the world maybe he's planning to be the president of mars that there is something going on there that none of us know but to, to dismiss it and say he's not running for president he's not doing anything i think is ridiculous there is definitely something going on okay if, if, if there wasn't why post those photos on the internet which you know everyone is going to pick up and talk about I have no answer. Me neither. Zuckerberg does. You know, I've been covering this industry for so long, and he, he is by far the slyest, smartest I've ever met. Um, is sly a compliment or not? In business, I guess it is. Um, you know, I think Jeff Bezos is probably the smartest CEO I've ever met, um, uh, but I think that um, uh, he's actually not as maniacal as as um as as Zuck can be in his in his quest for domination. Um you should uh, talk to some retailers. Yeah. <laughs> no, he is, but it's it's this is like Zuck is next level. Like I think Zuck th- thinks 20 30 moves ahead and they really truly do. And um and uh and he's he's incredibly adept businessman. Um one more uh, topic in the in Silicon Valley world, uh, especially as we're talking about Mark Zuckerberg. So, you wrote Hatching Twitter, which was, I guess, your first big success uh, in terms of book writing. And my first book was not a big success. And we I'm, won't even I'm, we, I'm we sorry won't even to mention anyone it. who uh, who read it. I'm and, just kidding. And so, and so, you know, that book had a real effect on sort of perception of um, Twitter, the company, also. Um, particularly Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey yeah. When was the last time you've spoken to him? I actually spoke to Jack uh, a few months ago. I did a piece for Vanity Fair on whether Jack Dorsey could save Twitter. Um, and I sent him a note and I said, hey, I'm going to do this piece. And he said, let's talk. Uh, so I went up and we had tacos. Um, and uh, they weren't that great. He thought they were really good. They were okay. They were, I mean, they were from a food truck, so... Does that uh, say something about him? No, I deeper? just, I just, I, I, uh, um, I was going to recommend the place, but it's, it's not that good. So, um, uh, anyway, so we, 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 you know, we spoke and, um, and we spoke about the book a little bit. Um, and you know, there's this thing I think that that we as journalists tend to not people don't realize that the people we write about that actually does affect us. At least for me, it does. Um, and um, and I. You know, I try to put myself in the person's shoes I'm writing about. And it was with the Twitter book, it was especially difficult because I knew them all. Uh, I knew you were, uh, you were you were friends socially with yeah, Jack. Yeah, friends with all of them, um, except Noah. Noah I, I got to know um, and an incredibly sweet guy. And, yeah, I was friends with Jack and, and, and would see Ev and Biz at dinners and events in San Francisco and – and um, and it was really hard to to write the book um, knowing 
that I knew these people as people. But at the same time, I also knew that the story that was out there about Twitter prior to the book was not the right story and that a lot of people had been written out of history. A lot of people had been screwed over. Um, and I felt that that was more important than anything was to tell the, tell the truth about what really happened. I think some people there still feel uh, like they were blindsided about what the book became versus what they heard initially. What do you mean? In terms of, um, you know, your, your pitch to publishers as sort of like this inside well, tale of backstabbing and so it's it's interesting so the the a lot of people were like oh well you set out to destroy jack dorsey's career the 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 pitch that i wrote to the publishers the the proposal the book proposal i had believed the same story that everyone else had believed and the story was that jack dorsey came up with twitter in his bedroom when he was eight years old um <laughs> and that he had i mean that's the story that was the one that was out there and that he's you know and he came to Silicon Valley and um, and realized the idea and Av kicked him out of the company for power and control. That, I swear to God, was the pitch for the book. When I started reporting the book, I realized it was the complete opposite way around, that it was four friends, Av, Jack, Biz, and Noah, who accidentally kind of stumbled upon this thing and each brought something to it. You know, Ev's, and Jack's original idea for Twitter was called status, which is correct, right? But his original idea was there would be a page, a web page, where you would put in what you were doing in a very, very succinct, small number of letters. Like, literally, it was like, at work, drinking coffee. It wouldn't have been 140 characters. Anyway. There was no edit button. There was no edit button. And there was no, and every status update would disappear when you put a new one. So if you... He that, created Snapchat too. It was it was pretty much Snapchat yeah. for words. Yep. Uh, for only a couple of words. So that was his original idea. And um, so Evan Williams, who had um, worked, who created Blogger, was like, "Well, you don't want to delete them. You want to be able to see a timeline of them. So we we should make it so everyone has a um, uh, their 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 page." Um, uh, Noah Glass came up with the name. Um, the logo, the identity, um, he was the one that, that you know, kind of really pushed this idea of it being like short numbers of characters and so on. Uh, Bizstone. And the one who got erased, completely erased. Completely and utterly erased from the story. And, and you know, there, I think there are so many – in all startups, this is the case. that One person gets credit for the whole thing and there are a lot of people that actually were involved, a lot of people. In the case of Twitter, if it wasn't for Noah Glass, Twitter would not exist definitively not exist um and uh him coming up with the name i think was one of the things that made it so fun and so intriguing um you know his influence with the design which was this kind of like fluffy you know enjoyable thing um uh, with the text messaging all these different things um that would not exist and i think it wouldn't exist if all of them had not been in the room if jack ev and biz um and noah had not been there so we're going to finish up with two or three real rapid-fire okay. questions, which is something I just created in my head that's not original at all but should be fun. Yeah. So let's go with 18 months from now, who owns Twitter? Disney. Ooh. Maybe Disney. I think, I, don't think, I think that there's a play that's going on right now, and it's very, very smart, uh, and I, I give Jack a lot of credit for this. They've realized that live video is working. Uh, and they're going to continue to expand live video on the site. And um, and it's growing the numbers, and um, it'll probably grow the engagement. And people don't say a lot of mean things about live video, uh, which brings down the troll factor. Um, and I think if that continues to happen, it's, it could be 
a Netflix, a, a Disney, or something like that that ends up buying them. Okay, you want to hear mine? Yeah. Amazon. I okay. Why? I think the price needs to come down a ton. Oh, the price, think, of course, needs to I, come down a ton. I think video as well. Yeah. I think video is a piece. I think there's a whole bunch of other reasons, which maybe I'll lay out in the post someday. Well, but, but I also think if you know if if you think about um, the film industry, um, and I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair on this, the future of Hollywood, and the, the future of in, in in a couple of years or ten years or whatever, we're not going to go to movie theaters. You know, we're we're going to probably watch movies on Facebook, and and they'll be ad supported, and we won't have to pay for them, and and people who make movies won't meet won't reach a couple of million people. They'll reach hundreds of millions of people, or you know, and the same is true for Twitter, and 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 I think that. Um, the people, the potential suitors for that, um, uh, there's a lot out there now. There's Netflix, there's Amazon, there's Disney, there's maybe NBC or something like that. Um, and so uh, I think that we're going to see we're going to see some difference happen as a result of that. So I failed that quick fire, but this is right. La- we had a, we had a we had a good quick fire back. The, and forth. the last one, um, watching Jack's leadership of Square and what's been a rather successful run so far as a public company. Does that change your opinion of of him as a as a leader, and I think our time is up. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, um, that's a no. No, I think that it's you know. Look, he he. You've got to give him credit for. It, it was funny. There was one point in time when both companies had gone public, and um, and Square was the the. I I believe it was the. There was a week where it had risen the most on the market of any stock and in Twitter the tech, fell. and Twitter had fallen the most on yeah. the market, and. Um, Square's doing really well um, uh, from everyone I've spoken to, um, and um, and it's being run really well. Uh, and I think the problem with Twitter is not Jack. Um, I don't think anyone could save that company in the way that they thought that Jack was going to be able to. Um, I think that the DNA of a company is built into the beginning of it, and the DNA of that company is chaos. Um, and it's the platform. It's the way people use it. It works perfectly for, for 330 million people to have a conversation. Uh, it doesn't work perfectly to run a business, but um, you know I think that that Jack has learned a lot as a CEO over the past few years. Um, he doesn't; he's not as out there in public as he once was. I think the biggest criticism that everyone had of Jack right. um, before was that he took credit for things he didn't do, and I don't see him doing that anymore. And so, um, so I do think he's grown a lot as a CEO. I think that's a wrap, actually. Nick Bilton, thanks so much for coming by here today to Recode Media. American Kingpin went on sale this week. It's a great read. I read it in a couple of days. It's fascinating. It's going to be a movie soon, I think. Is that right, Nick? If maybe Hollywood is Hollywood and it's, it's fickle. If, if there's anyone out there looking to disrupt an industry, do the Hollywood industry, please. It needs it. Uh, but it, it, there's a chance that it's going to be moving the Coen Brothers or, and Steve Zalian are working on a script. You should you should go buy it. You could buy it on Amazon. Want to thank Peter Kafka for letting me hijack his chair. Maybe he'll let me back someday. Also want to thank Kara Swisher and Lauren Good, uh, my colleagues and former colleague, uh, who let me hijack their podcast. Too embarrassed to ask this week, where we talked about Apple payments, the future of banks and whether they'll be disrupted, and that episode will be live tomorrow. That's too embarrassed to ask. Thanks, all. Thanks, Jason. That was a great interview with Nick Bilton. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you want to hear more of this stuff, mostly recorded by me, I've done interviews with Dory Shafir about her new book, Startup. Talk to Mike Allen from Axios. 
James Altucher, who's in the James Altucher business. That's a fun one. They're all free. You can get them whenever you want, wherever you want. All we ask is that you rate us or review us or at least subscribe. All of those things help, and all of those things help us produce more podcasts for you for free. Thank you. I always tell you to go listen to Kara Swisher's podcast, so go do that. It's called Recode Decode. Same goes for Lauren Good, who has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Those are both great shows. They're free as well. Thanks to our sponsors. We love our sponsors. Mac Weldon, Willis Towers Watson, HostGator, and Viacom. Thanks to Digital Media, the guys who sell those ads. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson. My editor, Chris Basil. Thank you, Chris. You're great. This is Recode Media. You guys are great, too. I'll see you next week.